0: With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.
4: The producers
0: of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
5: Traumatic event, something I couldn't cope with, didn't handle it committed crimes and then you're in prison. Like that's, that's like, that's how it snowballs, you know, and a a lot of guys were in the same boat. That was my eye eye opener for prison is that that there was just a lot of pain.
6: For one family at least, connecting with James Harding's Hard Cuddles organisation was the intervention that made the difference. Steve was fresh out of jail when he met James. He was a convicted domestic abuser, helpless against his addiction, on the verge of losing his children and still blaming his partner for his troubles. His mum heard about hard cuddles and suggested to Steve that James could help him. He's now sober and clean and helping other men through the hard cuddles program. Both Steve and James join me, Emily Webb, for this episode of Australian True Crime. For free phone counselling 24 hours a day, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. We spoke to you, James, really early on in Australian True Crime, and it was amazing about hard cuddles and about your story. And I know that a lot's happened since then. So tell us a bit about what's been going on.
4: Yeah. Yep. Thanks for having us back. Yeah, it just exploded. I remember just as we finished, I thought, oh, that felt good. And Michelle sort of off the cuff said, just get ready for what's about to happen. And it just went mad. Absolutely. Right across the country, we were getting contact and different opportunities and stuff. So from that, from that podcast, a girl uh, that works at Hopkins Prison contacted us and that was always a life goal to work in the prison. So we're working in there now. Not a lot of money for corrections, but we counsel prison inmates for free. That's our community initiative. And that all came because of listeners, of avid listeners of Australian True Crime Podcast. We've been engaged to do some sensitive work for the Victorian police, some really sensitive community development. AXO have contacted us, We've done a little bit of work with them, but again, anything attached to corrections, they seem to be, they don't want to spend money on it from from our perspective. We're working with IRMA, a not-for-profit organisation with complex mental health and intellectual disability, sporting organisations, culture and wellbeing, corporate organisations, culture and wellbeing. We're doing some work at schools now, obviously alcohol and drug addiction counselling, and our private clients, athletes, children, I've done a little bit myself personally, family intervention and some relationship counselling and that all came, well, at least 90% of that came off the back of, I'd always ask and they'd say, oh, so-and-so heard you on Australian True Crime. And it always made me giggle because like, Michelle, the way she said it, I was just, I didn't know what to think but I had a feeling and things just exploded and, yeah i couldn't I couldn't be more thankful to you both.
6: Oh, it's you know, it makes me and I'll speak for Michelle as well. It just thrills us that that has happened. It's great to have you back and you've brought along a hard cuddles graduate and participant, Steve, and it's really great to be able to talk to you to see what's what's happened since you know we first spoke to James about hard cuddles. So tell us about yourself, Steve, and how did you come to do hard cuddles?
5: I met James off the, I oh, it was probably September, September 6th, 2018. I was fresh out of prison. Um, I was homeless at the time. I was really struggling with my mental health. I was a drug addict. I was in a lot of pain. You know, I was trying everything. Like I'd seen some counsellors and I just felt like I wasn't really getting anywhere. One of my mum's friends actually read James's book and said maybe give maybe give this guy a ring you know Steve's very angry very defensive and you know he keeps telling everybody that no one understands and um, maybe this guy could because he's got a, a troubled background so that's how it started that yeah gave James a call we hit it off straight away and had a had a laugh and I hadn't had a laugh in a long time so um it was uh it was refre- it was refreshing we caught up and um you know, he was just really welcoming and just, you know, he didn't offer me solutions or anything like that straight away. He was just there and just listened. And, you know, that was, that was huge. I just sort of needed someone to be a soundboard and just normalize my situation. And, and then we got to work, but yeah, I was in prison for domestic violence. I was in for, for three months. I was a perpetrator of domestic violence and that was, yeah, horrible, a horrible experience. But, um, you know that all sort of stemmed from a um, losing a child. We had a a baby pass away, and me, me and my partner really struggled with that. Um, I really struggled with that. I didn't um I didn't talk about how I was feeling. I was trying to be supportive for her and be the strength and be this, you know, pretend that like this didn't affect me. And um you know I found myself mourning and grieving a child that hadn't had a life like it was it was different you know I'd lost individuals before but I always had memories of their life to sort of fall back on but this was sort of really different I was you know I wasn't getting woken up every two hours to give a baby a a feed and that sort of crushed me as a man it really did and um but I didn't talk about it that was my that was my big thing I sort of kept it all down and I had a lot of guilt I thought that, you know, it was my job to protect my son and um, I didn't in this case. And, you know, that led to this, I don't know, like this, res- I had this resentment towards my own partner about, um, you know, that it's her fault that she made me feel this way. And I never spoke about it with her. I just like, that's just what what I was thinking and what I was feeling and, um, you know, I'm being there for you, but you're not there for me and but I wasn't really talking about it either but it was just like that's what was going on that was the the dialogue and the story that was running through my head and eventually um you know I was looking for an out I was you know blaming myself I was blaming my partner so I turned to drugs to just to silence that voice cuz I had to function I had four other children that I had to provide for you know I had two houses a business I was working you know, 20 hours a, a day, like, so I was just flat chats and, you know, that sort of kept those feelings that I didn't want to address silent for a period of time, you know, but that just slowly got worse and worse. The, the, the noise, the, um, the emotions just got harder and harder to suppress. So it, it didn't really work, but, um, you know, I gave it a good crack. <laughs> yeah. So, um, that's, sort, that's sort of what happened but then um you know a relationship when there's drugs involved just sort of always escalates like the violence just escalates between both of you however when a when a man's violent towards a woman the effects are so much more damaging than than, say when a female's violent and yeah i i exploded one day and um i strangled my partner we had uh the house had been burgled and i I was holding her responsible for that. And um yeah that that's what I went to prison for. You'd think that that would be enough to sort of turn it around, but it was that's not sort of how it happened, you know, I went I went to prison really bitter and I wanted revenge on the people that burgled the house and my partner. I was really I was really angry and I felt powerless and that situation and with the with the child and that was like just cemented all these feelings and emotions that I just didn't know how to deal with. I didn't have any tools. I was just sort of winging it and out of prison met James and we did a bit of work on feelings. <laughs> yeah, we actually went We went away. He took me on a retreat. He just said, oh, look, come away on a retreat with me. Look, magical stuff happens out there, you know. Are you willing to give it a go? And I said, Yeah, I am. So we went away f- for a five-day retreat to a beautiful part of the world. So we were there, and he asked me to write a letter to my dead son. Obviously, that was where it was all sort of stemming from. And he said, If you, I want you to read it out over the campfire. And I said, Oh, yeah, okay. So I was really uncomfortable about doing that because I hadn't really shed a tear or about it yet. It just sort of was all sitting, you know, in my body somewhere. Yeah. So I read this letter, uh, and there was another young guy there as well, Asher. He was he was there listening on his own journey, and I read out the letter, and you know I cried my eyes out. I was just you know asking for forgiveness for my for my son, who would have been three at the time, just to, like, can I let you go? Because it's not doing me any good. It's not serving me anymore. And, you know, I was overwhelmed with this feeling of forgiveness and self-love from James, but also just from the place and, you know, something within myself that just, you know, allowed me to to let it go. Yeah, like at the end of the five days, I was feeling really light and I remember driving out with James and I said, what's all this, you know, I feel amazing, you know, what's going on here? And he goes, you're just feeling, bro. And I went, ah, right. You know, like, well, I better get some more of that. And it's, and it's been, you know, that just sort of opened that door of emotions and like, like it's okay, it's okay to feel them. I think I had a lot of beliefs, like beliefs or misperceptions about emotions you know they're weak. You know they make you feel powerless. Being vulnerable is not okay. You know you're supposed to be. This is that's not what a man does. And that was that didn't work for me. That didn't work for me. It just sort of led me on a really dark path. And things came up afterwards. Like it wasn't just like that was that was it. I was done. You know I checked in with James regularly and just said, oh look, this has come this has come up. You know this is what I'm feeling you know, like, is this, is this okay? Like, you know, and James was always very nurturing and, you know, just a really good listener. And, you know, that just, that just allowed me the opportunity to sort of heal and understand and make sense of all, of everything that had happened. Then I sort of got myself right. And then he offered me a position. He said, "Will you see how it works. Do you think you could do this with other men? I said, yeah, absolutely. So, Yes, yeah, so he sort of took me under his wing and did did my apprenticeship I suppose with uh with James and and uh yeah, I, I've just it's been a life-changing experience. It's, like, it's I feel like it's my purpose now. Like now that I've sort of come out of my own pain, um you know, I just want to help people through theirs. So it's been a real um it's been a ride, hasn't it, mate?
4: It has, mate. <laughs> it has even listening to it how much that stories like he's – Emily, he's an impressive guy. What I want to say is, there are people that are just that ready and committed to change, and that was the look that he had. Whereas we do get a lot of people that you can tell are just spinning the wheels. But yeah, there was a there was a there was a need to get better. Like he was pretty determined. So when you got that as your base, it's very easy to assist. But it has been a hell of a ride, like, yeah. Because I think he came on, when the podcast got released, it was like two weeks after we were on that retreat and we were still getting a lot of messages and stuff from some of your female fans, which was really interesting at the time. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, it just exploded. So that's, that's, I actually thought your auntie had heard of the podcast, but it was the book. So, but yeah, no, it's been a hell of a ride.
6: I'm interested in sort of the holistic look as well. So Hard Cuddles has helped you, I guess, come to a reckoning about what happened and why, and you're making amends, obviously. You're, you're healing and you're grieving. With your partner, how was she supported through what happened and how were you made to realise the, the gravity of what happened? And, yeah, did you get help in jail?
5: Without sort of, without sort of putting the prison system down, not really, you know, you 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 got access to programs and stuff like that, but you know the way it's delivered, the content, it's I didn't I didn't walk out of those experiences and go go I really learned something about myself today. Like I feel I'm feeling better about myself. It was you know a real, yeah. Just it didn't connect. It didn't it didn't connect. I would, I would always walk out going who wrote this. You know, like this is not how it is. So yeah, that was there wasn't a lot in prison no and my my partner at the time wasn't getting a lot of help there was there was services available to her and stuff like that and yes they were sort of helping her through especially the police because of what happened they were they were helping her out and dhs were involved and uh so there was access to services but it was a really you know a real difficult situation you know that um that she had to sort of go through and she had to she pretty much had to do that on her own yeah because, like, her, her family support was pretty minimal at the time just because they sort of knew what was going on and had taken a step back, you know, maybe because they were afraid of in, involving themselves with, you know, what was going on, you know. But there was, you know, drugs. It wasn't a very nice environment, yeah.
6: How's your relationship with your ex-partner now? Like, how did you say, for want of a better word, sorry, it's a very simplistic question, I know, mm. but
5: great question. Yeah. <laughs> we actually have a really good relationship now. You know, I had to, I had to take ownership of a lot of things that were going on in the relationship before, even before it went on. You know, I was not—I didn't really understand this at the time, but I was really disempowering my partner. Um, I was a real fixer. So whenever there was a problem that arised, um, I'd fix things straight away. And that was, you know, my partner didn't really learn anything in, in that process. You know, I just if there was a problem, I'd fix it and let's get on with things because that made me feel uncomfortable because emotions were vulnerable. You know, it was just like that's how things were going. So I was a real rescuer. That was my role. Yeah, that. That's, that was like where it sort of all began. That was like the, the behavior, the dysfunction, the, the codependency relationship. Like That's where it sort of all began. And then it sort of escalated with the emotions and a bit of, you know, a, a a circumstance outside of our control. And yeah, but we, like we co-parent two children. So, you know, and we do it well. And if I was to say, like, how are we doing that well? Like, you know, there's a lot of empowerment in our relationship now. and I think that's sort of, I'm just put, this is just my opinion. I think that's going to be like uh, the way back for domestic violence. It's not about blaming and shaming anyone or it's, it's about empowering both men and women in these situations. And um, that, will, that will ultimately heal the domestic violence situation.
6: Yeah, I'm really interested in that. Yeah. What you said because I don't, I don't want people listening to think I'm an apologist for male violence against women. But I do see that. How's it going to get better? How are we going to tackle it meaningfully and effectively? What What's What are you thinking, James? Because you were working with men who have perpetrated violence against mm. their partners, their family, other. People, what what's your take on it at the moment?
4: I automatically go to two guys that I've worked with in prison that committed some like the most extreme crimes against women. And you think is there a way back? I don't. I actually don't have the answer for for the extreme domestic violence. I think what Stephen's getting onto empowering both parties. I think proactively has to be the way forward. Um but it's going to be awkward and sticky and for people to even go in and to hear the stats and stuff. It's not like, this is something there has to be um un- like a unified buy-in from everybody here because the more you open up this conversation to children and to like it's got yeah, it's got to start at children, I think, really. Because then children can recognise, you know, the behaviour at, at its early stages. or And kids are cool. They'll call that stuff out straight away. Like the other day for having a cigarette and my kids, all f- four of them ran outside telling me, you're going to have sticky blood, Dad. Please put the cigarette, you know. Like that level of awareness and ac- kids can hold you accountable. But it's teaching, I think, Emily, over a period of um, – it's got to be. It's got to start, and there's going to be. Uh, it's going to be over a long period of time before it becomes normal that everybody calls this stuff out. Because if you do it early, like, and you see those ads, actually, some of those ads are pretty, pretty good, and you can see people squ- squirm and. Yeah, so I think education, I guess, is is the that's the the only answer. I haven't really got all the answers to this. I'm learning so much even now about the framework around domestic violence because any course that I get handed to me in in relation to domestic violence, I'll take because um, yeah, it's uh, it's important, I think.
6: There's a link to James Harding's Hard Cuddles website in our show notes to this episode, as well as other resources you may be interested in if you or someone in your family is struggling with addiction. Lifeline offers free phone counselling 24 hours a day on 131114. 14. Thank you to patrons Danielle Minchow, Tiffany Gard, Kimberly VDM, Tracy Shepard and Jessica.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com/host.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
6: And I know we've touched on this before when we spoke to you the first time, and you shared very openly about how a lot of your drug use and you know, use of violence, the standover life that you led really was born of that sense of shame from when you had been out with your mate and he was attacked and you were a kid. I mean, you're a teenager yep. and you you felt like you didn't do enough. Yeah, And I, I've often thought about that because I do feel there's, because of the stereotypes and the stuff that we put on men and women, it doesn't serve us. And especially for men in that way, shame is a real factor, isn't it, in how behaviours are displayed. Oh, yeah. I'm very interested yeah, in this you've topic. Nailed
4: you've nailed it. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, that that sense of shame that I felt went against what I thought a man was and a man in 1996, 97 was very different to what a man is today. So the shame simmered and then I presented this extreme version of myself and that was being manipulative and controlling and that way I didn't have to feel or feel fear or that shame. It was always simmering. And then that I was controlling women emotionally, um, uh, financially. Absolutely, I was shocking, absolutely shocking. And that that sense of shame, if you really wanted to simplify it, was the thing that was burning away inside. And my inability to turn around and just go, let's, you know, just face it. It was always there and I knew it was always there and I knew it was a driving thing. But um, I was just too, too scared to, to address it. And I think absolutely that was my uh, Achilles heel. And I think with men, shame. I'm thinking about a client I worked with last night and shame about letting people down. You know, that happened twice to me yesterday, same theme. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think you nailed it, Emily, with shame. I think it's critical.
6: Cool. Yeah, we, and we touch on it a lot, you know, especially with children who end up in the foster care system, say. Then they end up in juvenile detention and then it rolls on. Or, you know, so many boys who went to boys' homes were abused, like sexually abused, physically abused. And then, like in the 70s, a lot of these guys who were, like, the most notorious kind of criminals, armed robbers, all came out of the, the boys' home system. And you just think of that trauma that goes from way back and and brain development.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking about, like, this is empirical evidence that, that I'm coming, producing. I reckon looking and working emotionally with the guys in prison, I'd say 75% of those guys that we've worked with have been abused. And... um. I just—you can't even begin to imagine the level of not only shame, but as Stephen said before, disempowerment. You can see it in their eyes. I think I'm a pretty good judge of character and body language, and yeah, a few a few of the guys we worked with were really brave and actually just owned owned it, stood up, and one on one and admitted it. And the sense of freedom they got was profound. But yeah, these—it is a systemic thing like what are the stats, 6% I think of people in prison um, have finished year 12 and it's like a, most of the prison system comes from like a handful of postcodes. You know, it's it, it is it's a, it's a sad thing, it really is. But um, in regards to abuse and stuff like that, that's one thing that really s- struck out for me with guys that were in real pain. It was hard to, it is, it's really hard to, to look at because you can imagine, I've got young kids and, you know, you just, you think about them as young kids and being defenceless. So it's, yeah, that one I don't have the answers for, I can support really well, but I uh, don't have all the answers for that one.
6: Steve, what do you think now that you, you're you coming through the healing and you're working with other people and you, you know, you went to jail? I mean, you've had that absolute consequence.
5: Mm-hmm. I'm with James. I don't really have all the answers. I'm sort of figuring this out as I go along too, but I'm sort of getting a, an understanding that balancing your emotions and your perceptions about uh, events that have happened in your life, like, should be just part of the curriculum of of growing up. Like, and if it's not av- available to people. You know, like you only need to hear a few of the stories in prison, you know, and you get an understanding why they're there. It's not like it, it's it's pretty straightforward, you know. Like this, this happened, this happened, this happened, and now I'm here. Like it's, you know, and I was the I was the same, you know. Like, a traumatic event, um, something I couldn't cope with, didn't handle it, committed crimes, and then you're in prison. Like that's that's like that's how it snowballs, you know. And a, a lot of guys were. Um, in the same boat and I think um, that was my eye, eye opener for prison is that, that there was just a lot of pain and a lot of un- unaddressed stuff and that was, you know, and I was part of that. I was part of that that pool now and, um, you know, it was, you know, took a little while but, you know, I, I got there. So, like, you know, I, I want to be an advocate for prisoners and just to give them hope to, like, let them know, like, can be done.
4: On the flip side to that, Emily, is working with young adolescents that have been in resi care or been part of the system for a while. I guess because they've had to scrap and fight for everything, some of them, some of them have just straight up manipulative. But there's a huge sense of entitlement there because of the way the mental health system and everything's structured, which has been really interesting for me, both men and women. Like they are highly intelligent, cunning and at getting what they want and working the system using buzzwords, you know, I feel triggered, this sort of stuff. They're so smart. And that's been really – that's been a real eye-opener for me. Like th- these are people that have been part of that, you know, boys' homes, resi care. The way these They're really well looked after in a lot of ways. they given everything. So the sense of entitlement or – um Yeah, it's scary. Very scary.
6: I've got two daughters, one nearly 15 and one who's 11. And, yeah, that's interesting because they really know a lot of stuff. My teenager is very good at picking me up on my shit, really. Yep. And I struggle because I want everything for women and I want, you know, go out, do what you want, you know. They're just like, Mom, stop trying to turn everything into a lecture. (laughs) Roll the eyes. But they do – They just didn't know a lot of stuff, I think, from their peers and TikTok. And I know the issue of consent's obviously been massive lately and, you know, with what's happening politically and with the men you're working with, is that coming into the picture as well? Just the issue of how to relate to women in intimate relationships.
4: I was at a party once and I was talking to a grade prep teacher, a male, and I said, how do you do it? And he goes to me. I treat them all as people, and I was like, "Jesus, that's a bit of gold." I'm going to grab onto that, and just I just started working with the my own idea of it, and because our conversations, me and my wife, are so colourful with the clients and the work, and because she's like the go to the consiliari. And the kids the, they will look and go, well, you know, what what's a rapist at or something like that. So I'll deliver it, in, you know, in yeah. a sensitive fashion but still deliver it. So our kids through work and, you know, this is the payoff of this sort of work is your empathy levels and your compassion levels and they all shift. And by nature if you're the leader of your family, you and your wife, you know, the conversations and stuff you have, they've really switched on to this sort of stuff. Like I've had a a criminal f- came about through the podcast, career criminal actually. You know, I did a lot of work with him beforehand but I promised him we'd take away, I'd create, we'd create the funding to take him away on a retreat. He came and stayed at our house, serious violent offender two days before and after. And anyway, he was shown love by my family and – you know we do a thing at holding hands at the dinner table and he was just blown away by because foster kid and had never experienced anything but because of his crime the funniest part is my eldest daughter who's seven fronted him and said I'm really worried you're going to attack us while while we sleep and he he was so unsettled and didn't know what to say and I said it's just the way it is man like I'm straight up with the kids and um he goes, All right, I said, That's just the way Lucy is. He's like, Okay. I think he learned a lot from those two days mm-hmm. in a family environment.
6: It's powerful. Savage.
4: My eldest daughter, God gotta help everyone when she gets going, yeah.
6: Steve, how are you going with your kids?
4: Mm.
5: Oh, it's eventful. So I've got a seven year old and a one year old. My seven year old Sienna, she's um so we we do a lot of debriefing about, obviously because of emotions being such a, a thing that wasn't spoken about or something that I really needed to work on, that, um, that's been sort of like a foundation going forward. And, uh, you know, Sienna's had a lot of, she's had a rough start, you know, like she's had a, you know, as a three-year-old, her family was ripped apart. Her dad went to prison. Her mum went and got help and her siblings were shipped to Shepparton. So for a three-year-old, to go through that, there's going to be some huge, you know, traumatic and emotional responses there. So like, I I'm um, you know, we do a lot of debriefing and, and a lot of the time, like I've get caught out a lot. Um, if I can't manage her emotions, like she'll, she'll say to me, just let me, you know, you say I'm allowed to feel, let me feel. And I go, okay. You know, cause it might be a lot of, like a tantrum for half an hour. And that's like, you know, like it's exhausting, you know? And, um, So, but yeah, like Sienna's doing really well at school and like I went and saw a a child psychologist that was really, really helpful at the time, not for her, like for myself because like how to, how to manage things from her perspective and like how to understand and attune with her better and because, you know, she'd been through the ringer. You know, I sort of just come back onto the scene. You know, I was getting myself right, but also, like, you know, I had to learn how to be a dad again, you know, because I'd checked out, checked out as a dad and wasn't showing up as a partner. We were on a care by secretary order. So there, there was a lot to come back from, you know. And um, so, yeah, so from my daughter's perspective, you know, she had, you know, a happy two, three years of, like, um, you know, a normal family life, and then everything just went you know, pear shaped and like, you know, what's life now? And, you know, it's hard, it's hard for her. Like, so prep and one grade one were quite, quite hard for her because she got to see, you know, mum and dad rocking up to school instead of just dad, you know, and, you know, that was really, really difficult. And, you know, we, we speak about it regularly, but, um, you know, it's always, it's always there. And I'm just always trying to, nurture and encourage her to talk to me about these things, you know, plus whatever a seven-year-old's going through, like they just have normal stuff that goes on, you know, and that's, you know, it's just that, that other layer of of stuff that, you know, that I've contributed to my daughter's life at such a young age and like how the brain develops and all that sort of jazz like you you, you do, like I do as a parent. I, I worry that the impact that my journey and my stories had on her might have long-lasting effects. So... Yeah.
6: You mentioned a care by secretary order. What's that?
5: A care by secretary order is is what happens when you don't show up for your kids. So that's when um your kids are removed from from removed from you by DHS. It's not straight away. So it's like if you continue not to show up for a long period of time, you go onto a care by secretary order and if like that's sort of like the last straw. And if you don't if you don't come back from there, then it's like a permanent based order. But yeah, so I wasn't sh- I wasn't showing up as a as a father to my daughter for, you know, a good eighteen months. So like yeah, so we were going through the system and you know, I had to give I had to give up drugs and like I I would I'd be clean sometimes and then not some some other times and and uh yeah, like that wasn't that wasn't good enough, you know. And um that was and it wasn't it wasn't good enough. But yeah, care by a care by secretary order is just is just like the last straw before your kids are removed from you. My ex-partner had three kids to a previous marriage and he passed away um, through a drug overdose actually. you know, So when I came onto the scene, I've always loved kids. That's like anybody who knows me well enough will see me how I act around kids and they're like, yeah, right, okay, I get it. So that's why the the, the loss of the child was just, you know, it's my, it's my biggest value. So that's why it hurt me so much. So they were they're my step kids, but I was dad for seven years. So, you know, and it wasn't like a um, that wasn't like I wasn't connected to them or anything like that. So, you know, um, you know, they lost their idea of a, a father figure as as well because for you know for six years, at least six years, like life was life was good. You know, their um development was good, and I'd like to think I was a good dad. And um, but yeah, I'd had work to do, and it wasn't till. Was not until um, you know, we lost the lost the baby that that sort of spiral out of control. But they, them themselves again have had to they've been ripped apart from their families and like they live with uh, their grandmother now in Shepparton. You know, they've had they've got their stuff to deal with and like they're teenage like nearly teenagers now and you know and they've got to deal with all that stuff on the back end as well so like you know again you know as a stepfather you know you sort of fear and worry that oh god my you know my story's gonna you know it's great that i'm in a better place now but like you do you worry as a father and as a stepfather that like you know what I my impact on them there's been some good parts but you know you know we don't necessarily remember all the good times all the time we you know tend to focus on the negative so um, those negative experiences i'm hoping that um you know, don't do too much damage and, you know, if I can speak to them and talk to them, nurture them in any way I can, I do. So I do see them still. Like, they come down every month or so and they always get my full present attention, um, always. So
6: important. And how are you managing to stay
5: clean? Like, how have you managed that? Um, so um, a lot of addicts won't want to sort of hear this, but um, because... um. You know, addicts don't like sort of hearing the word "cured" and things like that. Um, but to be perfectly honest, you know, once I'd sort of worked out that what was driving the addiction, the emotions, and and what was driving it all, and it was all just guilt. And if once I sort of nailed that, you know, the 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 need to. To be an addict, fell away. The need for drugs was gone because, of, like, there was no more story to suppress. There was no more emotions that I was uncomfortable feeling. Like that, all just sort of fell away. So, and it's tiring running an
4: addiction, isn't it? Yeah, it's
5: exhausting. It's a lot of work. It's oh, full time
4: lying and all the bull.
6: Getting the cash. I always think
4: cash is never yeah. a problem. <laughs> you
6: know, yeah, <laughs> yeah like well, you know how you used to get your cash. I you know so you're just fucking your around. But yeah, I think shit. You got to like be getting your. Your stuff. So mm. you're either going to be like draining your resources if you're working, or else you've got to go get it some other way.
5: Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, I, def- I definitely did. I was a mover and shaker myself. So, yeah.
6: That's a diplomatic term.
5: Yeah. Mm, yes. Over in a shaker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Raconteur. Raconteur. <laughs> <That's it. laughs>
6: Resourceful man. Yes. Yes.
4: Yes. yes. His, his sister described him to me as entrepreneurial. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
6: yeah.
4: Um, but even I noticed, even with alcohol, like if you're a drinker and you're always looking to get on, it's like wherever you're going. You're subtly manipulating it. So you're going somewhere where there's alcohol or you sell the dream of a can of meal at a pub. Absolutely, and,
3: yeah.
4: Yeah, it's just, you know, it's very <laughs> funny because Australians are very interesting in our relationship with alcohol, I think. I think that's as bad as, I mean, ice is shocking. There's no unequivocal. Mm-hmm. But it's not until you have a few months sober or a few years or whatever do you notice how full on it's advertised, it's everywhere, it's in your face. And yeah, I I found I've always found that really interesting. Myself.
6: Mm, me too. Yeah. I I haven't had a drink for more than twenty years. have so Bravo. Definitely. So I know a bit about that sphere of uh, Do you listeners thing? know
4: how good you look?
6: Oh thank you. That's so nice. Yeah. You've got to address other issues, don't you? You got you look at one thing. But what I find is when you look at one thing, there's other stuff that springs up. So yeah. food for me is a thing, I'll be honest, but it takes a long time to look at that or, you know, you turn to turn back to Siggy's or, you yeah. you know, watch Netflix obsessively. It's all just yeah. the same kind of yeah. family, isn't it, of Absolutely.
4: stuff. I've always said it's a bit like that whack-a-mon game, you know, yeah, you knock him yeah. down and he pops, or it pops up <laughs> over
6: yeah. there.
4: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, it's 100%. So even shining a light on that, like I say I explain that to my wife this is the way I'm built and it's like managing that mm-hmm. so it'll go from Hungry Jack's Whoppers mm-hmm. to five hours and 45 minutes on a phone daily like it, that's how quickly it can but as soon as I said hey like my phone usage and I did have a big week work-wise has gone to five hours and 45 minutes a day she goes yeah yeah and I was like, "Oh my god, this needs to end." So I said, "I'm just going to stop this right now." I went and put it in the room, and then unconsciously, without me even knowing, I was creating excuses just to go back and just. And then we started laughing at it, the that addictive nature, and we had we had a lot of fun with it. So in I'm t- attaching what I'm saying onto Stephen's thing, it's just exhausting, and the I think. I think addressing or having a laugh at it or addressing what's underneath or having a laugh at it's so healthy. Mm.
6: Thank you to James Harding from Hard Cuddles and to Steve for sharing his story with us. Thank you again to our patrons, Janet Sweet, Catherine McDonald, Nicole Whittaker, Sky Doyle, Kylie Woodall, Jasmine Nolan Amy Napier, and TJ Mitchell. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
0: This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast
3: Creator Network.
2: for free shipping and 365-day
0: returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9:30 a.m. sharp.